This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Project Manager for Cultural Engagement at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is Understanding the Passion Week, the days leading up to Easter in the life of Jesus. I have three guests today, um, Dr. Daryl Bach, Senior Research Professor of New Testament at Dallas Seminary and Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center. Welcome, Daryl. It's my pleasure to be here. We also have Mark Bailey, President of Dallas Theological Seminary and Senior Professor of Bible Exposition. Welcome, Mark. Great to be with you. <laughs> and Jim Allman. Jim Allman is a Professor of Old Testament Studies here at the seminary. Thank thanks. you. Yeah, Thank thanks you. for being here. Well, the way we want to approach our conversation today on the Passion Week is thinking about people who are at these family gatherings around Easter time, and at least for me, these spiritual conversations tend to find me, you know, your skeptical (laughs) relatives, your friends. Um, And so we want to talk about the meaning, the significance, and the truth of some of these key events in the life of Jesus as we move into uh, the Easter story, um, so that we can help our friends at church, our family members, and even our skeptical friends understand the significance and the meaning of these events. So I'm just going to dive right in, and I want to start by talking about the Last Supper. The Last Supper. And Jim, I want to ask you, you know, how Jesus reoriented this oh meal, so how we can understand that, you know. So if I can ask you uh, to, to steal a line from the youngest Jewish kid, um, how is this <laughs> meal different from other meals? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are some significant changes that occur. One, one of the problems is we don't know a whole lot about how the Seder went in the first century. Mm-hmm. Um, the present Seder goes goes well back into history, but it's not clear that it goes all the way back to the first century. So we're not sure what all went on, but one thing that was common throughout the history of Passover was they told the story of the Exodus. And so here is Jesus coming along, working through the story of the Exodus, and at some point in the evening, he stops and takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. And that would have been a significant shock mm-hmm. to, to, to the men around him because they didn't expect anything like that. Mm-hmm. Everything should go as it's always gone. It's like having a, a, a Christmas on, at the wrong house on New Year's <laughs> Eve. <laughs> it's just, how do you live with that? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, they're probably as puzzled as, uh, at that as anything that Jesus said. And then, sometime later, he took the cup. Were there four cups? I don't know. Uh, it's not known whether that was a first century custom or not. But he took a cup, and he said, this is my blood. And that was a, a great departure. So it was quite a shock. This night is different from all of the nights because he's redefining what's going on in Passover. Mm-hmm. That the Passover is no longer... Uh, merely an animal slaughtered and being eaten by the family. It's something happening with him, hmm. and it's a complete reorganization of their thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when we think about how Jesus saw his death, his mm-hmm. own death, Mark, how can, uh, how can we understand better uh, the words of Jesus at this, at this meal, helping us understand what he thought about his death? 
Well, as you know, there's a lot of debate uh, of whether or not the early church uh, put back into Jesus' words the theological significance. We would argue with that and say we think that what he said was original to him, and he had his own consciousness about who he was and what he was doing. But it's interesting that uh, uh, an addition that Matthew makes that the other Gospels don't include, when he institutes it, he, he, he makes that statement that this is uh, on behalf of others, and it's for the forgiveness of sins. Mm. Yeah. And so the substitutionary nature of atonement and the resultant forgiveness of sins becomes uh, mm-hmm. significant. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this, this is done on behalf of others. It's not just he's celebrating it himself. And he is uh, doing what he's doing, which will provide the forgiveness of sins. So in between that statement of bread and that statement of the cup, uh, he is making a pretty significant claim to uh, mm-hmm. institute what he's doing is going to have salvific uh, implications. It's interesting how Paul connects the two in 1 Corinthians. He says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed yeah. for us, therefore let us keep the feast. As we think about the kind of authority then that Jesus is assuming here, Daryl, how do we understand how high this level of authority is that Jesus assumed? Well, he's doing several things. He's, um, first of all, uh, affirming that he's about to cut a, a new covenant. Uh, and whether it's worded as the covenant in my blood or the new covenant in my blood, everyone knows there's only one covenant left to be activated if the Davidic sign is present and if the Abrahamic promises are being met by the program of God. And so the new covenant is something that is that requires a death in order to be enacted, and his death is going to do that. But the really shocking thing is here is a rite, a piece of liturgy, if you will, that was laid out in the Pentateuch of the Old Testament has been uh, celebrated basically the same way for centuries. And Jesus comes in and, as Jim mentioned, all of a sudden he injects himself into this event. And you ask yourself, who has the authority to change a piece of the Pentateuch like that? Mm. And and the the natural answer is well he either doesn't have that authority in which case this is a this is not this could be the last supper <laughs> or or he absolutely does have that authority and really the events of the rest of the week are kind of the vote on that question you know by the time mm-hmm. Jesus gets vindicated at the resurrection and God has kind of brought him back to life, if you want to think of it that way, that's God's statement that everything that we have recorded that you've just heard and Mm -hmm. said is so, and he has the right to talk about his life and his death in these kinds of terms. Mm -hmm. And this isn't too dissimilar for what he's done on a previous occasion in the Feast of Tabernacles Mm -hmm. when he he steps up in the the temple precinct and said, I'm the light of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, in light of the cultural background of them celebrating that and then the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights later, he is is making some major claims (laughs) right in the face of Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. And this sort of, this one in his last week sort of culminates a series of those that he's done, but this is no minor one for sure. And and not least there is what had to be (laughs) the most appalling thing that Jesus said to the disciples, Mm. this is my blood, Mm -hmm. drink it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a change. That represents a massive shift from the Old Testament. So something new is going on. Yeah. 
And, and the early church learned from this lesson because when we get to some Old Testament texts that naturally would be directly connected to the God of Yahweh, to the you know to the God of the nation, they get specifically applied to Jesus going into that mm -hmm. slot. And so it's the same kind of uh, of substitutionary move and the same kind of indication of authority that we're dealing with. So there is there is a lot going on here between the bread and the cup. There, <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot happening. Yeah. And he introduced that back in John chapter 6, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where he said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have eternal life. Yeah. You know, and they're wondering, are, are you talking about cannibalism or, mm -hmm. or what? And uh, but in the in that up in that uh, bread of life discourse, he he equates that appropriation of bread and the cup with his life, mm -hmm. and he uses that eating imagery as a symbol for faith. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so in John six fifty uh, uh, thirty five, excuse me, he says it this way: He said, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst." And uh, on the heels of that, uh, he he says, "But I say this." Uh, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Mm. And so eating and drinking is put in as similar as a simile, or excuse me, as a metaphor for uh, the appropriation by faith yeah. in what he, uh, who he is and what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. Nobody there could have ever thought of the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. Right. But nobody reading John can read it without thinking about the Lord. That's right. Exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. And, the, and even the image of bread, something as simple as bread, is pointing to the to this sustenance, mm -hmm. the spiritual sustenance that Jesus represents. In the ancient world, you didn't survive without bread. Mm -hmm. It was your food. And so um, to say, I am the bread of life, you could almost say, I am life, mm -hmm. and you'd be mm -hmm. saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, understanding Christians are in different places where, when it comes to what exactly is happening when we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, mm -hmm. but is that the core uh, connection between the Lord's Supper and John 6? But by which you mean? Uh, the idea that, uh, that by, by participating with Jesus that we, we receive life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, again, it's the appropriation of mm -hmm. Christ by faith mm -hmm. yeah. is the emphasis in, the upper, in that uh, discourse of the bread of life. Uh, it's interesting in light of the various views of the Lord's table that uh, he practices it before there's ever a death. You know, and uh, which raises the question of what does it really mean then? Mm -hmm. You know, did they participate the night before he dies, and what does that mean uh, for <laughs> theological conclusions mm -hmm. with regard mm -hmm. to that? Mm -hmm. There's other podcasts that we've done on the uh, yes. the different views of the uh, Lord's table, so we won't repeat all of that here. But the the fact that he interjects the the, the truth of it in John six, mm -hmm. and he uh, practices it with his disciples with the Passover meal before he ever dies, uh, says something to the effect of what this means mm -hmm. and how it should yeah. be taken. Now, when we think about the Passover in, in terms of remembrance, when Jesus said, oh. do this in remembrance of yes. me, um, how would a Jewish person think about the kind of remembering that was going on and, yeah. and what might have Jesus meant by that? It's a fascinating concept in the Old mm -hmm. Testament and the New. Um, I, I always start this by saying when in Genesis uh, 8, God remembered Noah. Mm -hmm. Had he forgotten him? <laughs> and the answer is, couldn't be. It's not an option. So what does it mean for God to remember Noah? It means for God to go to work on the basis of what he knows and uh, act on behalf of Noah. So when he says in Hebrews, or indeed in uh, uh, Jeremiah 31, 
their sins and their lawless acts, I will remember no more. It's not that he can't remember our sins. Mm -hmm. It's that he's not going to act against us Mm -hmm. in in light of those sins. So if, as Paul does it in the uh, 1 Corinthians 11 passage, he, he uses memory in both the cup and the bread. Do this to remember me. Mm-hmm. The point is, if the, if the application of the blood of a bull can cleanse someone from contact with the dead, Hebrews 9 says, how much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Mm-hmm. So if I can take the, the, the cup at the table and walk away with a defiled conscience, I'm not remembering Jesus because mm-hmm. I'm not acting upon what I know. I'm not trusting the truth of the of the value of the blood of Christ. So to remember is to act upon what you know. So to to so respond to the work of Christ that even though you may not have a clean conscience, you don't act like you don't. You you act like Christ's blood is more powerful, more truthful than your own consciences, mm-hmm. and uh, take it serious and live in light of the mm-hmm. fact. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a sense of active participation oh, absolutely, there. It's kind of yeah. like, hey, we were all on Mount Sinai together, and mm-hmm. I came out of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. And so Jesus is applying that's, that kind of thing. That's the Passover idea, but mm-hmm. we're, we, when we come into the Lord's Supper, that's this memory issue is critical. You must, for, a, for an Israelite, you remember that you were part of Israel, and you're to think of yourself as having participated personally in, in mm-hmm. that event. But now I'm to think of myself as having personally participated in the work of Christ mm. and received the benefits of it, Wow! to live in faith in that. It's a massive idea. Yeah. Yeah. That introduces the whole <clears throat> theology of the cross in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. What is the practical oh, outworking yeah. of in sanctification of our remembrance of our justification? Mm-hmm in terms of uh, he died, he bore our sins on his own mm-hmm. body on the tree, that we might die to sin mm-hmm. and live yeah. you know, for righteousness. Yes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the practical outworking. And so I think, Jim, like you said, coming to the table, the contemplation of that is all that this means, mm. all that it took, mm. I can never forget and I must remember because that will change the way I live. Mm. And that's why to come with any other thought is coming, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, unworthily. Mm-hmm. And we, mm-hmm. we bring judgment to ourselves. Why? Because we have dismissed our concept of sinfulness. We've dismissed the concept of his saviorhood, and we've missed the whole point mm-hmm. of coming mm-hmm. to that, that and, event. And the powerful thought, another powerful thought that strikes me is my very right to sit at the table and take that bread uh-huh. and that cup <laughs> yeah. is, is the product of his having taken my place, yeah. that the only reason I have the right to do yes. this is because of what he's done. And then the flip side of it is you ask what forgiveness of sins is for, and you're thinking Jewishly, well, it cleanses the vessel in some sense so that now the Spirit can reside in the person, make them a saint, to use Paul's word. Or a temple. Or a temple, yeah. exactly. And in the midst of that, then, they are sanctified and set apart, mm-hmm. and so they're launched out into a direction that is supposed to be the product of what it is they're remembering. So they're not only remembering Jesus' death, they should be also meditating on what Jesus' death is for, and that mm-hmm. is to mold and shape them yeah. into the men and women of God he calls us to be. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on now to Jesus standing before the Jewish leadership. And Daryl, I can never call this a trial in front of you. <laughs> this is, this is J- Jesus' Jewish examination. Right. If that's not a trial, could you explain to us kind of what this is Yeah, it's about? not a trial because in the yeah. end, the Jewish leadership can 
cannot issue a verdict that leads to to a conclusion of the matter. They're simply gathering material that justifies yeah. their taking a charge to Pilate, mm -hmm. who ultimately has the legal responsibility to decide whether Jesus is crucified or not. Mm -hmm. And so, so it, it, we often call it a trial. It's a, that's shorthand for what's going on because there is a, a kind of examination. But I like to uh, equate it with kind of a grand jury investigation. Yeah. We're justifying why we can take this charge to Pilate. And the key thing here is, is the Jewish leadership's got to get this right. Uh, the worst <laughs> thing that would happen would be to be examining this, mm -hmm. take it to Pilate, and Pilate look at the evidence and say, no, nope, don't think I should do anything with him here. I'm going to let him go. Mm -hmm. That would have been a public relations nightmare for the Jewish leadership. So they're very careful, actually, about how they go about this. Even though the text says they bring forward false witnesses, they've got to get, at least to be somewhat plausible, a charge that Pilate's going to swallow, or mm -hmm. else, or else the entire exercise is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And so, probably one of the the, the the key moment here is when when Jesus is asked if he is in fact uh, the Christ. And in Mark fourteen sixty one, the high priest questioned him. He said, "Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One?" "I am," said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, I think at a minimum, he's saying yes. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. But there's three texts that I want us to take a look at that can help us understand just all that's going on in this, in this verse. Um, and the first one I want to ask about is, Jim, I want to ask you about Psalm 110 yeah. and how that plays into this. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, Jesus, uh, as far as the gospel record is concerned, first quoted it in Luke 20, uh, in, in the event that's mm -hmm. recounted in Luke 20. And that's at the end of a somewhat of a debate between him and himself and the and the leaders of Israel in which they're trying to undercut him they're trying to um, uh, make him look foolish before the people <laughs> when they've all done their best he responds by saying I've got a question for you mm -hmm. whose whose son is Messiah and they say David's well David's a prophet and speaking by the spirit David said um, uh, the Lord said to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. I'm thinking of the Hebrew text here. In Greek, he says, the Lord said to my Lord. And so, so you, you have to ask the question, well, what kind of person, and this is the question he asks them, what kind of person is this son of David that David calls him Lord? And they're not able to answer. But it comes back, and he uses that in, in Luke 22, then. Uh, the claim he's making, again, he makes outlandish claims. Mm -hmm. If they're not true, they are mm -hmm. simply outlandish claims. They're mm -hmm. nonsense. Mm -hmm. He claims, um, uh, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of glory, seated at the, at the right hand of the majesty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And they, they the high priest tears his robes, which mm -hmm. is a sign mm -hmm. of of uh, uh, having been confronted by heresy. Mm -hmm. And you know, who, who, what else do we need? What other information? Do they we get need? the point. You, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but he claims to be the one who is both son of David and master over David, who has the right to sit at the right hand of God. Um, what kind of person is that? Nobody sits in God's presence. Mm -hmm. uh, the twelve, the twenty-four elders maybe sit in there in God's presence, but they fall on their faces often enough. <laughs> so, what other kind of person? They sit before the Lord. Who is this that sits with 
with the Father on the right hand. And so he's making a claim that has to be answered. Mm-hmm. And another part of this that shows the tension is you're in a patriarchal society in which, <laughs> in which normally the deference goes to the ancestor. But here we're talking about a great, 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 great grandson who gets the honor. So, you know, how does how does he's asking how does that happen? And if the deference declines generation by generation, he's too far down the road. That's right. There are lots of people in the queue in front of him. Isn't he really asking how can David's son be David's lord? That's exactly right. And and what's interesting is when you pronounce this, let's assume that this is verbalized in in a in an environment in which people are sensitive to how names are being used, you're, when, you, when you go to do this in Greek or even perhaps in Hebrew, you're going to say it in a way in which the ambiguity of the two Lord terms is going to show up because you're not going to pronounce the name of God in mm-hmm. the midst of articulating the passage. Mm-hmm. And so, so th- there could well be a reflection of that uh, custom going on in the way this has been rendered to us. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, let's take a look at Daniel 7 now, because this whole <laughs> idea of riding the clouds mm-hmm. plays into this as well. And so, Mark, <laughs> I want to ask you about uh, Daniel 7.13, where uh, you know, Daniel has this vision, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. How does that help us understand what Jesus is alluding to here? Yeah, this comes in that uh, great section where in the Daniel 7 account of the succession of kingdoms, after four Gentile kingdoms, now one comes who is totally different from and superior to. And uh, there's uh, some question as to whether he's coming from heaven to earth as one riding on the clouds. Uh, Others would say no, because he's going to present himself before the Ancient of Days. It's actually his ascension. Mm -hmm. So then comes the question, how can the one called the Son of Man, uh, one, approach the Ancient of Days and be given the right to rule mm-hmm. in such a way that all worship comes to him. Right. Uh, that's the term. And in fact, let me read the text. It, it says, <clears throat> and I kept looking uh, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, uh, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. When this gets quoted in the Gospels, it's always in reference to the second coming. You know, when he comes in the clouds, at the second coming in all the gospel passages. But the question might be, is this an ascension 
to gain that control and that authority, and some have applied it to the ascension of Christ because it's through the resurrection and the ascension that he declared him to be both Lord and Christ. And then the gospel expectation is, if I am who I am, and I am the Son of Man who will come on the clouds, then I've already, uh, what's presupposed in Jesus' mind is, I'm going to go get the authority and I'm going to come back. And that fits some of his other explanations. But regardless of whether he's coming from heaven <coughs> as the Son of Man, and it's speaking of incarnation mm -hmm. of the Son of Man, uh, the, he says he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Uh, the very term that's used in this passage is a term of worship. Uh, in the Aramaic section of Daniel, uh, it's a term that's used of worship that's only worthy of deity. Hmm, interesting. So Daniel 7.13, and this idea that someone who rides the clouds is doing God stuff, that's not something that, that non-divine beings do, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, throughout the Old Testament, the writing of the clouds imagery is heavenly beings, you know, uh, who have access to heaven and the authority of heaven. And so uh, one like the Son of Man, therefore we have a human being who has heavenly authority. And so that the images are both in terms of enthronement idea that he gets the authority to rule and the ultimate eschatological return to exercise that rule. And so it's very much a, a strong argument for uh, obviously the deity and the authority of Christ. Mm -hmm. We're seeing this authority just get ratcheted up higher and higher as we keep going here. Yeah. Um, there's a text now that most people probably haven't heard of. It's it's First Enoch, and mm -hmm. most of us don't have our, have our devotions in First Enoch. In the <laughs> but First Enoch 62 talks about this judgment day, and, mm -hmm. and I want to read a, a brief passage. And Daryl, I'm going to ask you to help us with this. Uh, First Enoch 62, uh, 3 to 5 says, The high officials shall see how he sits on the throne of his glory. They'll be terrified. The pain will seize them, and they will see the Son of Man sitting on the throne of glory. So help us understand what this means for the Jewish leadership hearing this from Jesus. Well, the interesting thing about a text like this, you know, is we're not suggesting it's Scripture or anything, but it shows you how Jewish people were thinking about this mm -hmm. category at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, this text from First Enoch comes from a work, it's actually a composite work, of, of which one of the sections is called the similitudes or the parables of Enoch, probably written in the turn between B.C. to A.D. Uh, some people even think that uh, this was written uh, in Galilee. Uh, Jim Charlesworth of Princeton and I edited a book together in which we talked about the origins of this text and where it came, comes from. And this was one of the things that we think is quite possible. And so, so the point is if you want to know how the Son of Man figure is seen in the, in the ancient times and you want a Jewish text of the time to show you kind of what they're thinking about, that's it. So when Jim mentioned earlier the, the priest tears his robe, he's understanding what it is that Jesus is claiming. Now, he doesn't believe it, so he tears his robes, mm -hmm. but he understands the claim. If Jesus is not who he claims to be, then what he's uttered is blasphemy. Mm -hmm. But if he is who he claims to be, then God, he's proclaiming that God's going to exalt him, and one day 
He's going to be their judge. So imagine the paraphrase that goes like this. You may think I'm on trial here and that I'm in trouble, but you can do with me whatever you want. One day God's going to vindicate me, and after that vindication, you're going to be looking into my eyes. <laughs> you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty powerful statement that he's making. And again, we're back to the question we asked earlier, which is who's able to sit in God's presence and get away with it? Um, and, and so all this is coming uh, with this territory. So this is a very significant claim. It actually is the reason Jesus got crucified. Mm -hmm. He got crucified because he said this. Mm -hmm. What need do we have of other witnesses? This was the basis upon which they took the charge on to Pilate. So the real irony is that Jesus is crucified for a statement that he makes that enables him to die for everybody. Mm -hmm. Now that is, that is powerful to, and mm -hmm. profound mm -hmm. to reflect on. He really took himself to the cross. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the irony is, I understand it, there were three ways you could commit blasphemy. You could commit blasphemy by adding to God what was not true of God. God's capricious, you know, he's inconsistent. Uh, you could take away from God attributes, or you could be claiming equality with God. Mm. And so Jesus is, in one sense, claiming to be equal with God, having godly authority. And so the charge of blasphemy is almost uh, on, on all sides of that. They're thinking that he's really done it. Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm, is it. Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is it. And the irony in the, in the account is that in the religious trials, they are accusing him of blasphemy when in reality, for them to deny him being deity is blasphemous itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they're accusing him of the very thing they're guilty of, which right. gives that substitutionary. Mm -hmm. the, the one who's being charged with blasphemy is actually going to die for those who are committing blasphemy. Mm -hmm. And the charge in the religious or in the political trials uh, is treason, insurrection. Mm -hmm. And the irony by the people saying, we have no king but Caesar, mm -hmm. they've actually committed the ultimate treason themselves mm -hmm. as Jews saying, we worship, you know, and I mean, we will have Caesar as uh, you know, our king. Right. Uh, that's that's as treasonous as you could get, you mm -hmm. know, from a Jewish perspective. So, the ironies are just full throughout the passages. Yeah, and this is why you call this the battle of the blasphemies, right? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> because it's like this authority is just getting higher and higher. When they think they're offended now, that's Jesus right. brings oh. the authority up even they're, higher. There basically is a choice being put before them about what's going on mm -hmm. here. We, and and what, the way I describe it is, it's two trains on the same track headed in opposite directions that are eventually going to meet. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've got a claim of exaltation coming mm -hmm. this way from Jesus. You've got a perception of blasphemy coming this way from the Jewish leadership. And in this trial, they clash. And then the question becomes at a literary level in the text, who's right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who's, whose judgment about this is correct? And of course, the rest of the week is the play out on that. And we get God's vote with the empty tomb. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and so lo and behold, we get the exaltation that is, that, that is the sign, yes, Jesus made a claim of exaltation, and God exalted him. Mm -hmm. Now, in the words of that famous commercial, you make the call. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, you mentioned earlier this this change um, of the of the, the the charge from blasphemy to sedition when they when they get him to Pilate. Mm -hmm. um, expand on that a little bit more. Why did they have to switch that up um, to bring him to Pilate? Well, I, th I think it's uh, if, if there's two there's a couple reasons. One, if uh, we can't really prove him wrong. Uh, we've got to find a charge that the Romans will accept because the Jews were not allowed to put somebody to death 
even though the Herodians and the Pharisees had taken counsel earlier in his life, how could they get him rid of him? So here's this religion, political, there's religious political coalition again. We got to get rid of this guy somehow, some way. <laughs> and so maybe we can get Rome upset. Maybe we can uh, put, uh, you know, the bite on Pilate and Herod to say this guy is so bad and he's going to lead a rebellion mm-hmm. and that's going to cause Rome to get upset. And so you guys better deal with this at a political level, mm-hmm. you know, like we've tried to do at a religious level. And I think it's the combination of those two that mm-hmm. then escalates it from the Jewish leadership to the Roman authorities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that his claim of messiahship um, can be translated to divine sonship, which can go to kingship, sure. which now, now it's sedition? Yeah, yeah. And in, and in fact, uh, Pilate will play with the Jews a little bit. Here's your king. Right. You know, king of the Jews. Now, he's not big enough to trump Rome, but uh, he's your king, isn't he? You know, and, and he's going to play with that, that very idea, but uh, that's, that is the linkage. Mm-hmm. Why was it so important for them to bring him to Pilate at this time? It seems like they were, they were pretty rushed to do it. Because Pilate was in town. They went, they didn't, the, la, the, la, the less time they had to hold on to Jesus because they didn't know what the popular reaction would be, the better. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing that's interesting about this is, is that notice now that we've got a buffer in what happens to Jesus when we think about this historically. Who's the person who put Jesus into the Jewish leader's hands? It's Judas, mm-hmm. one of his own. Mm-hmm. Who's the one who takes care of Jesus on the other end when we get all done? It's Pilate. He's the one who gives the, the charge that leads to Jesus' crucifixion. So if you came to the Jewish leadership and said, you're responsible for Jesus' death, they go, wait, wait, wait a minute, slow down, okay? All right. One of his own turned him in, and Rome made the call. And so they've got insulation on both ends in terms of the events. Now this has to happen, of course, because only Rome can crucify somebody. So they had to translate the religious charge into a political charge because if you had come to Pilate and said, you know what, Jesus has blasphemed our religion, Pilate would have gone, so? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good for him. This is, this, is, this is your problem, not yeah, mine, and it doesn't right. touch on Roman law. Mm-hmm. But the moment they come to him and say, he's claimed to be a king, and you didn't appoint him as a king. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, my joke is the Romans believed in law and order. You follow our law, or we'll put you in order. <laughs> and so that's exactly what's going on here. Yeah. Well, we move now to Jesus' crucifixion, and there's a lot we could say about that. But I just want to key in on one of the the more misunderstood parts of the account, where Jesus cries out, "My God, My God, yeah. why have you forsaken me?" Yeah. And on on a, a simple reading of that, many people think. What is he? Is he thinking that Jesus, uh, or rather that that God has has forsaken him, has really left him? Um, but if we look at that as an allusion to Psalm 22, we find that there's more to the story than that. There's quite a lot more. Um, in the first place, this is at the end of the hours of darkness that Jesus cries out, um, <clears throat> and it may well be uh, that there are different approaches to this, but there, it may well be that God had forsaken him, and that's really the mystery of the atonement. What Mm. does that mean for God the Father to abandon God the Son? How can that happen? I don't even know what it means. I know the meaning of every word I just said. I just don't know what they all mean together. (laughs) (laughs) But um, there's a mystery there. But Psalm 22 is is a psalm in which David presents himself in such deep suffering, and he's opposed by uh, significant people, powerful people, who, who, who ridicule him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he takes pleasure in him. I don't know whether Jesus was praying Psalm 22 while he was on the cross and they picked it up 
and used that to taunt him, or whether they, without really realizing it, quoted Psalm 22. And here is this one who is who is suffering profoundly. I can count all my bones. Um, my it, it's my my heart is is melted like wax. Mm-hmm. Uh, just profound suffering. David himself, no doubt, had some such event in his life. We don't have enough of his story to know what it was. But as he recorded it, God led him to record it in ways that anticipate what he's, what's going to happen to his greater son. And in the outcome, uh, it's fascinating, in some of the commentaries, Psalm 22 is actually do, treated as two separate psalms hmm. because people say, well, pfft, there, there, there's no coherence. Mm-hmm. After verse 21, it's too happy and it's hmm. too dismal before that. So how could there be any any unity? There's an interesting factor in verse 21. The the uh, uh, the translations go in different directions here, but uh, he says there, um, uh, uh, "Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the uh, horns of the wild oxen." And then he uses a verb form that's un, unusual. Um, in Hebrew, we would normally translate it as an indicative. But there's a, a rare usage of this form that's, that's treated as a, as a request. And so some of our translations read, answer me from the horns of the wild oxen. But what if I should take it as an indicative as it normally would be instead of appealing to a rare usage of the form? So save me from the mouth of the lion. From the even on the point of the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. Mm-hmm. Now God has given him an oracle, telling him, "I'm I'm going to work." Mm-hmm. And before David is even delivered, he starts to rejoice as if the deliverance is already complete. Mm-hmm. So so David has an experience of a kind of metaphorical resurrection. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's gone to the point that looks like death. They're treating him as if he's dead. Mm-hmm. They're dividing his clothes and casting lots for his for his uh, raiment, and now. He's rejoicing and talking about all the nations coming to praise God. Um, and so Psalm 22 is, is a great psalm that Jesus even cites. It's the, the, some of the gospel accounts are just full of allusions to Psalm 22. So it, it, it uh, is one of those psalms that Christians have gone back to over and over again to find the, the life of mm-hmm. Christ in it. So we're hearing the language of vindication here. Absolutely. An innocent man yeah. being vindicated by mm-hmm. God. Why would God vindicate a blasphemer? He's, right? leave, he's living in full trust in God, mm-hmm. but it appears that God has abandoned him. Mm-hmm. And the innocent sufferer idea is the core image of the way the crucifixion is actually described in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. When you actually go through the lead up to the crucifixion and what Jesus is before Pilate, there are numerous times in which Pilate says things like, this man is not worthy yeah. of death. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's not a flattering picture of Rome. Some critics like to say, oh, um, particularly Luke, likes to flatter the Romans. It's not flattering to say of someone, mm-hmm. I've got a judge in the docket who thinks I'm innocent, but he's going to send me to my death anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. so there's this, this uh, again, more irony in the way this story is told. Here is the innocent one who really is innocent, but he's suffering as someone who's committed a very serious crime. Mm-hmm. In fact, Luke goes out of his way, you know, in distinction from the other Gospels, three times to record Pilate's affirmation of innocence, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and then his fickleness, 
mm-hmm. you know, at the end of it all. Yeah. But I want to go back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. You know, who who's guilty for the death of Christ? And the irony is that uh, there's a, a, a Greek word, uh, paradidomi, that's used, <laughs> and it's used of Judas delivering him up. It's used of the religious leaders delivering him up. It's used of them delivering him up to the Roman soldiers who deliver him up to be crucified. And then you find in Romans 8, God did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all. Hmm. And, and God and Jesus in Galatians 2.20, where he loved me and delivered himself up for me. Yeah. And I, ironically, <laughs> as John says, quoting Jesus, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down in my own mm-hmm. accord. Mm-hmm. But all of them did the same, the delivered up mentality comes mm-hmm. all the way through. So you get Jew, Gentile, Judas, disciple, betrayer, denier, mm-hmm. you know, God the Father himself and Jesus himself delivers himself yeah. up. Wow. And so the, the, the guilt coming from, you know, who caused Jesus to go to the cross? The answer is yes. <laughs> all, all, all of the above. On all fronts. Yeah. All fronts, which, of course, is what, you know, Peter says in, in Acts 4, you know, that uh, Jew, Gentile did exactly what God had predetermined would, would take place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the sovereignty of God supervising all of this mm-hmm. for, obviously, salvation, salvation purposes is mm-hmm. just marvelous. Mm-hmm. And we keep seeing this authority theme come up over and over mm-hmm. again. He has the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it back up. Mm-hmm. You know, And so now let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, early, early in the morning, some women woke up early to go to see Jesus in the tomb where he had been buried, but what they didn't know is that Jesus got up earlier than them. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm going to ask you, Daryl, what is the significance of these first witnesses showing up at the tomb? Well, the oh. real significance is, is that in the ancient world, normally speaking, a woman wouldn't count as a witness. So the flip side of this is, if this story were being made up and created, which is what some people claim, the public relations meeting for keeping hope alive because we've got a dead Messiah who's still dead. A crucified. Dead crucified. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. He's yeah. not getting up from – if he goes through a crucifixion, he's not getting up from the dead. You know, what, how do we do this? Well, and, and now we're going to make up a story to try and keep this hope alive. It would never have mm-hmm. begun with women being the first witnesses to this event, mm-hmm. that you would take a culturally questionable category, physical resurrection, tie it to witnesses who don't have cultural credibility in order to make your case that the culture should believe this happened. Hmm. That would never be put together. as a ma- So the reason the women are in the story is because they're in the story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they, that's the only credible explanation for why they're being there. Women could only testify in very limited circumstances in the ancient world in certain kinds of cases. That's it. Otherwise, their testimony didn't count for anything. So this is a countercultural move that that interestingly enough, it's so countercultural that it shows that this story is not made up, that there's mm-hmm. something going on here that caused the disciples to absolutely change their mood from being despondent and in despair to now having all kinds of joy and a re- realization that something really significant had gone on. And of course, that significance is the vindication mm-hmm. of who Jesus is. We often at Easter preach the idea. That uh, that you know he's alive and one day we'll be alive. But the real message mm-hmm. of Easter at its core is God vindicated Jesus and showed him to be yeah. who he was, so that everything else that we talk about on Easter actually does matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and talk about the tomb being in in Jerusalem. How how does that just the the physical location of the tomb uh, further enhance this evidence? Well, in the first place, it's probably not in Jerusalem. In Jewish cities, they never had uh, burials in the city. It was always yeah. outside. So it was at Jerusalem. Yes, perhaps, would be good yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, I've seen two kinds of tomb from the first century. One is a, um, a tomb that they have niches. It's kind of a central um, open space, and then they dig back into the rock and uh, slide the body back in and, until it has deteriorated and then gather up the bones in the first century, put in a bone box. Mm -hmm. The other is um, like a small room with what looks like uh, beds cut in the rock, mm. and the body would be laid out on it. Given the description of the of the what the apostles saw after the resurrection, I think it's probably this latter kind. But it looks like perhaps there's a bed there, carved out on the rock. The head would be lifted up just like on a bed, mm -hmm. a little bit, and in the feet perhaps. And um, so it's probably one of those two kind. Uh, but the latter may be better for what we read in the gospels. And there's a door. You, you walk in, they would have rolled a tomb, uh, perhaps a stone across it to seal it. Pretty heavy stone? <laughs> heavy enough that the women had no idea how they were going to open it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, uh, it was a, a hard rock place. Yeah. <laughs> so for the resurrection reports to go out in Jerusalem, even though yeah. the tomb was not in Jerusalem right. itself, the tomb was located close. fairly yeah. close to yeah. there. Mm -hmm. um, not some far, far away place no. that no one could go uh, check this out. The, just outside the city gate, probably. Right. And it would have outside been probably a fairly well-known place. Mm -hmm. uh, Nicodemus is, is a very well-known leader in Judaism in the first mm -hmm. century, and mm -hmm. so uh, surely would have been a, a fairly well-known place anybody would have known pretty much, anybody who was anybody in, That's the, right. in mm -hmm. the city. Yeah, the controversy about where Jesus is buried still exists with us today in terms of what the location is, and there's debate about whether the the uh, Church of the Sepulchre is the, is the, is the appropriate traditional place. It, it now does appear that it was located outside the city in the first century, mm -hmm. and the interesting thing is, is that there are records of, of pagan shrines being built on top of it mm -hmm. in order to show the reclamation of a formerly Jewish sacred site. So, um, so there are some indications that that location may actually be accurate. So, although today, if you walked in, you'd say this is surely in the midst of Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, uh, in the ancient world, it looks to have perhaps been on the outside. So, it may actually be the location of where Jesus was buried. Hmm. When, might, we to, when we take teams of people to Jerusalem, uh, we'll take them there, and then we'll take them to what's called Gordon's Calvary or the Garden Tomb, mm -hmm. as it's popularly called. And what I like to tell people is take this imagery of the garden tomb that's well-kept because it was a well-kept garden, mm -hmm. et cetera, and transpose that on the map over to the other location <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and fix that. Because there's very, as Daryl says, there's very good early attestation of the site, mm -hmm. though it's obviously been uh, fought over for you know, centuries and continues to be. Our yeah. guide in Israel said uh, he asked the chief, architect, chief uh, archaeologist of Jerusalem, um, is what do you think? Is this the tomb at the at the mm -hmm. Church of the Holy Sepulchre? Mm -hmm. He said, "Yes, I think so." He said, "Are you absolutely certain?" So, ninety percent certain. He said, "What about the other ten percent?" He said, "We leave that for discussion." <laughs> <laughs> well, the time has just flown flown by, but I think what we're seeing here is this this theme of authority that mm -hmm. keeps coming up. That yeah. Jesus is claiming total authority mm -hmm. over the representatives of God on earth. 
and that the the resurrection really is the vindication, mm-hmm. God's vote, as you say, mm-hmm. in the discussion. Mm-hmm. And so, if you could give one sentence on the meaning of Easter <laughs> for our viewers, uh, you have you have one sense. What what would you say? I I love the passage in Romans where he says he was declared to be the Son of God with power yeah. mm-hmm. through the resurrection Amen. of the dead. Yeah. It is the the crowning proof of his identity. And in, when Paul spoke at Mars Hill, uh, he said that God proved that he had the right to be both redeemer and judge because he had appointed a man vindicating him by the resurrection. Hmm. Uh, and so it's that resurrection that vindicates him to be both redeemer and judge hmm. of all people. Yeah. I love how in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that if Jesus didn't rise, from the dead, then yeah. Christianity is false. Yep, right. exactly. But the converse is also true, exactly. that if Jesus did rise from the yes. dead, he yes. is who he claimed to mm-hmm. be, and Christianity is true, and eternal life is possible and available to you. Mm-hmm. So we thank you so much for being with us on the Table Podcast. Thank you, Daryl, for being here. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. My privilege. And thank you, Jim. Thank you for the invitation. You guys have a great Easter. We're happy that you joined us. Please uh, join us again next time on The Table Podcast here at Dallas Theological Seminary, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.